Good morning, I'm Anna Fenton and welcome to 20 Years On. In this 12-part series, I'll recall the events that have shaped Hong Kong in the last two decades. Since the memorable night when last Governor Chris Patton sailed away in the miserable pouring rain on the Royal Yacht Britannia. The summer of 1997 is famous for three things. The death of Princess Diana and Dodi Fayed in a Paris underpass, the Hong Kong handover from Great Britain to China, and then, almost immediately afterwards, the Asian financial crisis. The lead-up to the handover was a tense time. I'm off to meet journalist and author Steve Fines to hear how no one really knew what to expect. Would there be tanks rolling down the streets of Central? Or no change at all? Well, it was a, it was a curious period because you'd had the panic in 1989, that was immediately after Tiananmen, when people were flooding embassies, flooding consulates to try and emigrate from Hong Kong. By 97, that had cooled considerably. In fact, people were coming back to Hong Kong. Already, even then? Before... Even then, there were quite a number of people coming back. And all, the more I think about it, in hindsight, there was actually a period of considerable optimism. I mean, I remember, for example on the actual night of the handover, going up to the border to watch the PLA troops coming in, in the driving rain on these flatbed trucks. And there was an atmosphere of great excitement at the border. I'm talking about Chateau Coq, where they literally drove across the border. Now, nowadays, to get these sort of big displays of enthusiasm for, for the Chinese troops, you know, the people have to be offered free dinners and they have to be bussed out. No, these people weren't bussed out. They came out in the driving rain to cheer. They were very optimistic. There was this sense that the bad stuff had happened in 89. There was a new dawn for Hong Kong. Now, that wasn't a universal feeling, but there was a strong sense of that. And there was a strong sense that the... the, the uncertainties were going to be resolved. I, of course, in retrospect, we now know that the uncertainties never get resolved. But at the time, it seemed as though you know, the deal had been done with the British. There was a gracious, up to a point, a gracious handover, although the two sides notably barely spoke to each other before or during or after the ceremony, which I thought was quite interesting. Nonetheless, nonetheless... People had a mood of some optimism about all of this. There were, of course, misgivings, particularly among people who are politically active, who thought, this, there's lots of stuff that isn't clear to us, we'll see how that works out. And a lot of their misgivings, I think, have in fact turned out to be um, valid. But if you think back to the period immediately... Uh, say that a couple of years before 97 and 97 itself, the economy was doing quite well then, people were making money, the, the politics such as they were were looking relatively rosy. Remember, one of the things which we now forget is that the, the reforms, the political reforms at the absolute dog end of British rule were quite fundamental. The, the number of democratically elected members of the LegCo went up, all the local councils, which incidentally were completely abolished after 97, were fully democratically elected. There was a feeling that Hong Kong was getting back on its feet. In the political sphere, parties were forming. It was, it was beginning to resemble, in inverted commas, a, a more normal type of political society. Right. Now, that was taking us just past the handover. What happened then politically in, in the aftermath? 
immediately after the handover, I think that um, that people were, in a sense, quite shocked. Remember, the the um, all the all the Democrats were were, were kicked out of the legislature. Um, there was that period immediately after the handover when people thought, "Oh, blimey, this is a bit quick." We thought that that, that some of this would would happen because they brought in the provisional legislature that was formed over in Shenzhen before 97, those members, which were exclusively from the pro-government, pro-communist party camp, occupied all the seats in the legislature for that interim period. Mm. But, you know, people knew elections were going to be held, which indeed they were, and the particularly then the Democratic Party did extremely well in those elections. But what was interesting was so did the DAB, the Democratic Alliance for Betterment of Hong Kong, the pro-government party, it did much better than a lot of people expected. And I think the reason for that was that a lot of people had made up their minds at that early period, oh, well, this is the new order. We've got to find a way of living with it. We, we, sh- we should go and vote for the party that's closest to the incoming regime, which is the DAB. The other pro-government parties, interesting in that period, did very badly in those elections. So... You know, you started to have the emergence, which is now very profound, of this deep chasm between the pro-government camp and the uh, government opposition camp. Mm. That was Mm. on the one hand. And then people were completely mystified because the person in charge of the government, C.H. Tung, turned out to be this kind of bumbling, indecisive figure. And I remember talking to civil servants... Who, who were dealing with big policy issues, you said, who told me that things went onto his desk and they just piled and piled and piled because he wouldn't delegate responsibility. He wanted to take all the decisions, but he just couldn't. Either there was too, you know, he'd mm-hmm. taken on mm-hmm. too much or he just was congenitally incapable of taking decisions. And at that period, I don't think we realised the extent to what happened, but the, something very important happened which was that he started to refer big decisions about Hong Kong domestic policy to the newly established, then newly established, liaison office in Western. Is that where it all started then? It certainly started during that period. I mean, it wasn't, of course, public knowledge, and I've pieced together the story subsequently, but he was regularly going to them and saying, you know, what what do you think about this? Do you think I should appoint so-and-so? And... At first, I mean, what's interesting is they actually weren't that keen to get involved with this micromanagement. <laughs> it was sort of foisted on them by mm. C.H. Tung. They thought, because they had this mystical belief that, that you know, high-flying businessmen knew how to run stuff, they had this belief that, you know, you just give it to a business tycoon, he'll know how to get sort everything out. We want control of the big picture, but, you know, at the micro level, they will do it. So... On the one hand, he's referring decisions to the liaison office in Western. On the other hand, he was deeply distrustful of a very large swathe of his senior civil servants, believing that their allegiance was really to the old regime, not to the new regime. So relations between him and them were were quite difficult. And thirdly, because, of course, he'd had no real experience of politics... No, none at all. he, He just didn't get... The new political parties, which were growing and growing. And he didn't get 
that to be the chief executive of Hong Kong, to sit in Government House, well, he didn't, of course, he sat in his own apartment, he didn't even occupy Government House, but that's another story. But, you know, to do all of that, you did actually have to deal with outside forces, particularly forces in civil society. Just didn't get any of that at all. No, so remind us why he didn't occupy Government House. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, there, there were one reason given and another reason given. One reason was that he, he, he had a pretty nice residence of his own and he didn't really want to move into the old colonial building. But the other reason which a lot of people believed at the time and may well have been true was he didn't like the symbolism of moving into the the building that had been occupied by a long succession of British governors. He thought it would be better just to use it as an office, which is what he did, and, you know, not live there and just use it for big ceremonial occasions. That was journalist Steve Vines. I'm off to meet Tim Freshwater now. In 1984, Tim was president of the Law Society and one of only five Westerners among the 101 witnesses to the signing of the Joint Declaration in Beijing. He was also an advisor on the formation of the Tracker Fund. Tim explains what sparked the Asian financial crisis and how Hong Kong dug itself out of the financial mire. Tell me your memories of that time, because it's very important, I think, to put this in the context of what happened immediately after 97 and how everybody's focus suddenly changed. Well, I was uh, president of the Law Society in 1984, and the Attorney General sent the draft of the Joint Declaration round the legal profession um, for their comments, and uh, there were very few comments. And I think the comment that you can make is that people in Hong Kong society generally in the 1980s had been used to politics being something that existed elsewhere, nothing to do with them, them getting on with the job. They were very much still in that mood in in 1984, and it it was for those of us at the centre who really had to try and help the government lay down the the guidelines for the future development. Okay. Now, I think it's fair to say that what was on people's minds leading up to 97 was completely changed by what happened right after July the 1st. So how were people thinking just before the handover about what the major issues would be? Well, I I was away from Hong Kong for a lot of that period, but what happened, I think, is that this consciousness of what was was going to happen uh, sort of slowly dawned on people over that decade. We had the debate over the basic law, which took place, and then we had the the pattern years with all the the issues over uh, disputes that arose with China during that period. So people had an increasing awareness of what was going to happen in uh, 1997 and uh, the risks, effectively. Um, And so when we actually got to 1997, I think there was an enormous apprehension uh, among all sectors of society here as to what was going to happen next and whether this unprecedented deal that had been struck in 1984 and, and, uh, and uh, sort of with frills stuck on it after that was going to be um, something that could possibly work in the real world. Uh, so I think the general feeling as the, as the, as the yacht with uh, Mr Patton and co uh, went out of the harbour that night was um, apprehension. What's going to happen next? what's going to happen with China. We were definitely focused entirely on that and not really on the future of Hong Kong in the economic world. What were people's real fears? I remember all kinds of stupid rumours going around about, you know, 
troops driving down the main road from the border the day after. Oh, yeah. I mean, definitely. We, it, that very night, we still thought that it was probable that uh, columns of troops would march down to, um, to sort of take over. Uh, and, of course, uh, we overlook how pragmatic Chinese people are, and uh, that would have been a complete waste of effort and, and, and wasn't necessary. But right up until the day, um, we, we expected such things to happen. Right, so the day dawned very, very wet, and what happened literally the day after July the 1st? It stayed wet for the whole week. There, was, there, were, there were lots of uh, holidays and lots of parties, and it rained like hell. But um, I think... Uh, there was a bit of a wait and see, um, and really nothing happened. Things went on pretty much as usual until our eye was taken off the ball by other events, which was uh, the Asian crisis. And how did that uh, suddenly happen? Well, it, it sort of blew up that summer. I mean, I think uh, Southeast Asian economies had been growing at a huge, huge debt fueled pace um, for the previous several years. And uh, um, gearing was enormous all over the place. There was a lot of uh, uh, um, a lot of uh, borrowing on margin, a lot of uh, stock buying on margin. There were uh, stock markets were at, at significant highs, unsustainable highs. Uh, a lot of the borrowing had taken place in U.S. dollars. When these some of these economies came under stress, the currencies started to fall. That uh, created a vicious spiral. <coughs> took out quite a lot of the banks in uh, various countries, in Indonesia and uh, so on. And uh, we finished up in a full-scale crisis. The great thing for Hong Kong was that, uh, apart from the um, issue of its currency, which I perhaps come back to, um, which obviously did it affect us, uh, cause a crisis here, we did not have a banking crisis because Hong Kong had had its bank problems well, throughout its history, but particularly in my experience when I was here as a lawyer in the early 80s when a huge number of banks um, went under and were rescued by the major banks here with help from the government or with encouragement from the government. Um, and following that, the HKMA had established... HKMA? A, the, sorry, the Hong Kong Monetary Authority, mm. um, which would be, had been led by Bank of England personnel that had built up its own strong... Uh, a set of personnel to, to operate from 1997. Uh, they had established a control over the banking system, which remained absolutely rock solid through the Asian crisis, so that although we had a stock market crisis, we had no banking crisis. Right. And how did Hong Kong's general attitude of can-do and we can sort this out help, help us get through that, do you think? Well, I mean, the, the, the government took a very bold step. You will remember that when there was a major attack on the Hong Kong currency. I mean, I think uh, we can assume that everyone knows that the Hong Kong currency is pegged. This happened in the early 80s, in that previous crisis I was talking about. Pegged to the US pegged to the dollar. US dollar. And um, the effect of that is that it is possible to put pressure on that peg um, by the use of huge uh, sums of money. And that's what some speculators thought that they could make money doing and did. Uh, and the reaction of the government to that, um, it, was, it was backed by a lot of shorts on the stock market. The stock market went down uh, very substantially. You mean short selling? Short selling. Um, the, uh, 
stock market went down very substantially. There was um, uh, a real chance that um, that control of the currency would uh, would go, and the government stepped in and bought huge quantities of stock in the market. Right to um, to bail it com- out effectively. Uh, completely alien in a way to the the whole idea of free market Hong Kong and non-intervention and so on. Very timely, very courageous decision, and uh, it it worked. Um, so they saved our bacon, basically. They, they saved our bacon. Um, a, a number of people, um, the uh, Donald Chung, I think, was the financial secretary at the time. Um, uh, Ch Chung, of course, was the chief executive. The extent to which they talked to others, I don't know. You have to ask them. But it was a it was an excellent decision. And the result of that was that the government owned quite a lot of the stock market, stabilised the position, um, and Hong Kong from then on uh, was pretty good. That was lawyer-turned-banker Tim Freshwater. The years after the handover were, frankly, a bit of an anticlimax. Not much happened, and even the news media themselves relocated to Singapore, lured by better deals on rent. I'm now off to meet television company APB's Mark Erder in Telecom House, the former bastion of cable and wireless. He explains how the story and the journalists moved away from Hong Kong after the handover, only to come racing back for the two big news stories of 2003, SARS and the milkshake murder. That was when Nancy Kissel shocked expatriate Hong Kong to the core by bludgeoning her American banker husband Robert Kissel to death. So, Mark, I think it's fair to say that right after the handover was a bit of an anticlimax, wasn't it, especially for uh, news stories? Well, for um, small companies like ours who are doing broadcast journalism, yes, it was, because we found that we had the um, the lead-up to the handover, the handover itself, and then Singapore got the smart idea of attracting broadcasters and news organizations with great deals on on property and taxes, and many of them just abandoned Hong Kong and went there to uh, to use that as their base for Asia. And this not only did the broadcasters leave, but the story left. And there was nothing really to cover here until we had bird flu. And then with bird flu, there was just an explosion of activity. Tell us what happened for those of us who uh, who weren't there. Oh, you mean in terms of the... um, The infestation of of Hong Kong from duck farms and uh, and areas surrounding Hong Kong where people started getting sick and birds started getting sick and people realized that birds and people were living in too close proximity on their duck farms and then birds and ducks had to be um, slaughtered basically. Terrible pictures weren't there of mounds of dead birds everywhere. Yeah, I mean it was quite horrible and it was actually very scary because it was one of these um, these situations where there was a sense of epidemic that we really didn't know what was happening. Was this a science fiction film that we were living through what was going on and how were we all going to deal with it and cope with it how were we going to cover it as a story you know and not only was it a story that um, we were used to covering in terms of of calamities elsewhere this is really you know in our backyard it was right at home so we had to deal with things that were happening within Hong Kong that was 
in fact, quite unknown and fresh territory. This was beyond politics. This took us into the area of medicine and science. And so there was a bit of unease about it. And then if we even fast forward to 2003 when there was SARS, that was even scarier. Well, that was really a medically scary story, wasn't it? It was. It was huge. And, you know, we we were one of the... Uh, uh, the last men standing in Hong Kong at that time. Just remind us of what happened for again for those who weren't there. Um, well, <clears throat> starting at Ground Zero at a hotel in in Kowloon, somebody got sick, and from that, in a lift, he started spreading a uh, an unknown disease, which um, spread very rapidly, where people were hospitalized and had respiratory ailments that they weren't recovering from. And nobody could actually nail it down or figure out what the um, solution to this problem was, what the medical solution was. And um, there was this sense of, of quarantine that hit the city where people just started fleeing. People actually, a lot of the expats, just decided to to take off rather than um, than face the reality of what was happening uh, in their, their hometown. And the schools were closed down, which gave people good reason to depart. Many, many left. We stayed behind, covered it as a news story, and again, as a scary news story, because we had to go home to our families every night. And we had crews from all over the world traipsing through our office, going out to hospitals, going out to places where this um, disease was rampant as far as we knew, because none of us really knew what was what was happening medically. And uh, it turned out to be a very scary time, but it was a time where we all basically pulled together so that we understood, we made ourselves understand that this is just a reality of our time. And mm. with that, we had to um, uh, take care. We had to be hygienic. We had to, you know, take the proper precautions. And we had to go, go about our lives, you know, because this was our home. It wasn't like we could just pass through and pass out. And many of the, um, the wealthier expat families were allowed to do, were, were able to do that, and they fled and they only came back when they were given the all clear. Right, now that leads us quite neatly to the other big news story of the first few years after the handover, which was the murder of Robert Kissel, by his, who was a banker, by his wife Nancy. Now you were very involved in that as well. Well, when that happened in late two, 2003, I saw that story at the time as something that was really emblematic of the expat life, the financial life, the moneyed life of Hong Kong. And I really wanted to get to the bottom of it and try to understand it and unravel it. And it took me quite a number of years to to get close to the people in that story so that I could actually start filming it. Just remind us what happened. In... Um, well, first of all, during SARS, in earlier, earlier in 2003, Nancy Kissel and her children left Hong Kong. They went to the United States to a home that they have in Vermont. Rob stayed behind. He worked. He continued to travel. Their relationship devolved over time. She then came back. They tried reconciliation. 
reconciliation didn't really work. They tried counseling. She tried medical um, avenues through various doctors to get over depression and other ailments that she had. And finally, there was an unthinkable evening where there was, in her terms, a fight. She won, he lost, and in the prosecution's terms, there was a planned premeditated murder where she put drugs in his um, milkshake, put him to sleep, and then bashed him to death. Uh, her defense story was quite the opposite from that. Her defense story was that she was defending herself against his attacks. Long and the short of it is, she was found guilty of premeditated murder and was given a life sentence without the possibility of parole, and she's still in prison in Hong Kong, the only American, as far as I know, who is in jail here. Mm, now, you still see her a lot, and I believe only just very recently. How, how is she these days? I saw her a couple of days ago, and as she said, she's feeling a sense of resurrection because she's actually become... A jailhouse lawyer. She's learned the ins and outs of the legal system, the British legal system. She, according to many lawyers I've spoken to in town, knows just as much, if not more, about murder cases in this legal system as anybody else, as any practicing lawyer. And what she's doing in prison is representing other women who are there, who don't necessarily speak English, certainly don't speak Cantonese, and need some good legal aid. So, as she says, she now has eight clients, and these clients are mostly traffickers who are from places like Russia, Africa, and South America. Drug traffickers. Drug traffickers, and she's helping them with her cases. She's very pleased that Two of those cases have been overturned on appeal, and she was especially chuffed because the first case was one that was heard by Michael Lunn, who tried her very first trial where she was found guilty of murder. Because she was tried and twice, wasn't she? She was tried same, twice, same yes. Murder. And in the case with um, this particular trafficker, she had listed various points of appeal which the legal aid... Um, a barrister apparently ignored um, Justice Lunn suggested that he think of these various points in his defense of his client and all those points led back to information that Nancy had actually laid out for the defendant and it led to her having her um, case overturned Oh, my goodness. So she now speaks Cantonese, I believe, and yeah. doesn't think that she will be getting out of prison anytime no, soon. she doesn't. I mean, I basically said something to her um, about, well, when you, when, you, when you finally get out, maybe you could actually practice law in Hong Kong or be a paralegal. And she looked at me, shook her head, and she said, I'm never getting out of here. This is where I am. And that's when she said, this is a resurrection for me. This is where I belong. This is what I need to do. I need to help these people because they don't have anybody else who's helping. And she was quite critical of the legal aid um, uh, help that people here can get from the Justice Department. That was APV's Mark Erder, bringing us up to date with Nancy Kissel. Thank you to all my guests this week. I'm Anna Fenton. Oh, do you remember the-